You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number eight. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to take a few seconds and thank all of you so much for listening to the Mother Good Podcast. I've just been blown away and inspired so much by all of your kind messages and comments and reviews that you've left on the podcast. And we definitely weren't expecting so many thousands of downloads, you know, in in just the first couple of months of airing this podcast. But we are so appreciative for all of our loyal listeners. And we are so glad that we have been so inspiring to all of you. Today on the podcast, we are talking with Francie Broghammer again about a very important topic, and that's the mental health of women and mothers. Many of us have heard of the baby blues and postpartum depression, but a lot of us, myself included, before talking with Francie, didn't really know what these mean and how to recognize them in ourselves and others. And I didn't realize that there's also a host of other mental health issues that are never talked about and that so many women experience. There's depression and anxiety that occurs during pregnancy. There's postpartum anxiety in addition to the more well-known postpartum depression. There's a more rare postpartum psychosis, but it's still equally important to know what it is and what the warning signs are because it could prove deadly. And there's even depression when women aren't pregnant. Francie talks about in this episode how some women can be depressed during certain times of their normal cycle and not even realize why they feel so depressed for only a few days a month. And she talks about what may possibly be the biggest shocker in this episode, at least what I thought was a big shocker to me, and that's that fathers can also get postpartum depression and anxiety. Just let that sink in. So check in with your spouses and make sure you're monitoring their symptoms as well and check in to see how they're doing. And Francie's going to get into that too about how to have conversations with your spouse, how to know when to seek professional help, how to manage your symptoms, how to talk about these issues with your spouse, and how to lead an overall healthy lifestyle when it comes to your mental health. So if you are a woman and there are some days where you just feel really down, or you're pregnant or postpartum. And as Francie talks about in this episode, the postpartum period is actually up to a year after giving birth. So if you fit any of those categories, this episode is for you. So without further ado, here is another amazing conversation with our friend Francie. Welcome to Mother Good, where we strongly believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. I'm your host, Emily Carney, and I'm so happy that you are here. Our conversations are positive, practical, authentic, and judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. If you are looking for a meaningful motherhood community and ready to thrive, not just survive, you are in the right place. Motherhood is a nonprofit organization funded by our generous donors. If you like this podcast, please consider joining them at motherhoodco.com/give. Hi Francie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. So happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you back on the show too to share some of your research and wisdom on mental health issues that moms face. I know that there's so much misinformation and negative stigma surrounding mental health. And I can't wait for you to share your research on it because it's such an important topic for health and the livelihood of mothers. So can you give us a brief overview at first of the mental health issues that mothers face? Yeah. And I'm actually going to back it up just a little, if you don't mind. And I'm going to say the mental health issues that women face in particular, because the two are intimately related. 
And what's fascinating when you start to delve into some of the, the data and research surrounding this is that a lot of the common mental health disorders, such as depression, anxiety, even suicidal thoughts, are intimately tied to changes in hormone levels. And if you track a woman's estrogen level throughout her life, you'll see that it roughly correlates with rates of depression in the, the time that you see increasing rates of depression for women overall. And so I think that's really telling to know that women are kind of uniquely um, sensitive in this way because their hormones fluctuate so much more than men's do. And so we kind of bear a different um, load when it comes to being vulnerable for mental illness. Wow, I didn't really realize that. So you're talking about just the regular cycle that women have and they experience different levels of hormones that can really affect their mental health? Yes, that's right. So there's, we actually have data showing that at a certain time during your um, menstrual phase, right? So a menstrual phase is about 28 days and you have ovulation about halfway through, et cetera. We know that when your estrogen and progesterone are at a certain point, which is roughly about halfway through your 28-day cycle, we know that by and large, women have the highest suicide rates during that time because it's this specific mix of estrogen and progesterone that's happening at that point that makes us more vulnerable to these types of emotions and maybe acting impulsively in a, as a response to that. Do you advise... I know we're getting a little off track, but I'm just kind of fascinated about this. Do you advise women to track their cycles to kind of be aware of that? Or what are some practical tips that women can use to kind of avoid falling into that pitfall around that that time? Sure. And so yes and no. It depends on the woman in particular. I think we've all had friends that seem to have really bad periods or really bad cycles, and it seems to affect them more. And there's some women that it's, they just don't respond in, in quite the same way. And so if I'll frequently see patients who will say, you know, three or four days a month, like it's just really terrible. And then I'm fine the rest of the time, which is an atypical presentation for depression or anxiety, something like that. Typically, if you're in a state where you're meeting criteria for a major episode of depression or anxiety, it's like that pretty much every day for weeks to months on end. But if someone comes in and says, oh, it's just a couple days a month that this is happening and then I'm better, but dear Lord, are those months terrible or are those days terrible? Then I'll advise that they start tracking their cycle and we might frequently will start to see trends with where they are and what that says about their hormone differential. And that's something that's very unique to women. I don't see this kind of two to three days that are really terrible each month um, for men as it relates to depression or anxiety. And what do you have women do for those few days? Do they what do you advise them to do? Is it just kind of, you know, be more aware of it or should they take some active or proactive steps? Yeah. The, so the science here is fascinating and I'm a little bit nerdy in this way, but if it's to the point that it's severe and during those days you're meeting criteria for like a major depressive disorder, when you look at those symptoms and it's just really impacting your life and making it hard to, you know, go to work and maybe cook meals and get your kids from school, like do the things that you need to do in everyday life. If it's hard for you to carry out those tasks as a result of this, we actually know that you can take antidepressants for a couple days before and a couple days while this is happening and then not take them for the rest of, of the month. And this is a really, we don't use antidepressants in this way for any other disorder, but if we know that it's menstrual related or hormone related in this way and it's cyclical, we can actually um, use prescriptions for just a, a discrete period of time each month. I didn't realize that you could use antidepressants in that way that you were saying just for a few days a month. That's really fascinating. And I'm so glad to have discovered that. Um, 
So let's talk now about some of the mental health issues that women face when they become moms, starting off with pregnancy, because I think this is a little less known than postpartum depression. You know, I think people kind of are more or less aware of that. But can you talk a little bit about some of the mental health issues that women might face when they're even pregnant? Yeah. So in the perinatal um, period, which is what we call it um, before the baby is actually born, and right around the time that the baby's born, and right after, peri meaning around, natal meaning baby, so before, during, and after, um, we see increasing rates of depression and anxiety in particular. And it ranges from kind of a normal expectation, right? Like there's anticipatory anxiety, what's life going to be like? I'm, I, I don't feel settled. I'm very anxious. I have a lot of questions. I'm not, maybe I feel like I should just be happy all of the time, but I spend a lot of time worrying. You know, some of that is normal and to be expected, but it also can get to the point for both depression and anxiety during this phase that it can be very debilitating, kind of like we talked about before. It can make it really hard to, you know, carry out your daily tasks, make it to work on time. Maybe you'll start missing more days of work. You feel like you can't necessarily get out of bed. You don't really have much of an appetite. Or if you're feeling very anxious, the opposite might be true. Like you can't even leave the house. You're just worried something's going to happen or you can't sleep because you just can't get your nerves to calm down, things like that. And we do see increased rates of this um, from the time of conception to actually a year after delivery. So we're talking almost a two-year window here that women are at increased um, risk for experiencing these things because their body is going through a really, really unique time and it's being taxed in a way that it isn't for the majority of, of the lifespan outside of that. During pregnancy and postpartum, how should women know if what they're experiencing is normal or not? I only ask because I remember when I was pregnant that I there's this hilarious story. It's hilarious now, but at the time, it seemed very serious to me that my husband and I had a misunderstanding about ice cream because I it was one of the few things that I could eat when I was nauseous during the first trimester. And he ended up eating my favorite flavor. And I just thought it was like the end of the world and all this stuff. And I was crying and hysterical and I'm not even a crier. So it's kind of ridiculous looking back on it. But so is that normal or like, how do we know if what we're experiencing is normal? It's just, is it just whether or not we can function, you know, cause I mean, I could obviously like still go to work and function and all that sorts of stuff, but yeah. How do we know, I guess. Yeah. So you pretty much hit the nail on the head. General rule of thumb, if the symptoms are bad enough that they're impairing your daily functioning, work, school, daily household tasks, interacting with other children or other family members, um, if you are not able to do those things in a successful way, then it's definitely, definitely time to reach out. But that said, even if you're kind of like, gosh, this doesn't feel quite right. I'm not really sure it's worth asking someone. And the beautiful thing in particular about the prenatal period when you're pregnant is you're seeing a doctor pretty darn regularly. And our OBGYNs are so used to women having kind of these fluctuations in their hormones and their emotions. OBGYNs, sure, they do babies, but they do a lot more mental health um, than a lot of other types of practitioners do because these two things are intimately tied. So if you're at one of your prenatal appointments and you're like, I'm just not sure if this is to the point that I need to see a specialist about it or not, talk to your OB. Let that be an open dialogue. That appointment is not just about your physical health and baby's physical health, but it's about your overall well-being and your your level of functioning and flourishing. That's such a good point. I didn't think of mentioning it to your OBGYN. And I know that they always have those questionnaires 
at the beginning or ending of appointments. I feel like it was mostly the postpartum, but it's definitely uh, good to know that you can bring that up during your pregnancy appointments. Now, one of my friends had depression while she was pregnant. And I guess this is something that both of us kind of discovered while we were pregnant is that, uh, you know, depression during pregnancy is an actual thing that can occur in women. Is that is that pretty common? And what should women do um, if they are experiencing, you know, signs of depression when they're pregnant? Yes. So it's more common than you'd think. We do see a slight uptick in depression um, during this prenatal period when women are gestating a baby or when they're pregnant. And what's really interesting and important to talk about when we consider kind of prenatal depression is that it's really, really, really important that mom gets connected to health, gets connected to a healthcare provider who can guide her through this because it doesn't just affect her health, it affects baby's health. We have evidence now showing that when um, women have depression that goes untreated for their pregnancy, the baby actually has some downstream effects, such as um, they'll maybe weigh less when they're born, or they're going to potentially have, be a little bit more fussy or maybe not quite as responsive to mom early on. And it's because getting these hormones and the other neurotransmitters, the, the brain chemicals, if you will, if they're not in balance during the period that the, time, that the baby's cooking, you know, that's kind of what the baby's marinating in. So we need to do our best to make sure that both mom, mom is taking care of herself for both her and for baby. I had no idea it had those, you know, lasting repercussions to the baby. That's, that's incredible. And that should be a motivation for anyone to seek help or at least ask questions to their doctor for that. Certainly. Let's talk now about the postpartum period and postpartum depression. I think a lot of people have heard about it and know that it, it exists but I'm not sure everyone is entirely familiar with all of the signs and symptoms of it. Uh, can you talk about that? Yes. And I'm going to start, before I talk about postpartum depression, I'm going to talk about baby blues, actually, because that is more likely than not what most women are going to experience during this time. And baby blues happens to 90% of women after they have a baby, especially in the two weeks after they have a baby. You, it'll feel like your emotions um, and your drive and your motivation are just all over the place. It's frequently just um, characterized by mood swings, anxiety, sadness, irritability, very easily feeling overwhelmed, which granted you're doing a lot in these first two weeks. You're probably more likely to fear, feel very tearful. Um, it might be hard for you to concentrate or necessarily sleep as well as you would like, which again, hard to do with a new baby anyway. And by and large, you might feel like you just can't motivate yourself to eat or you don't have much of an appetite, which can result um, in unintended weight loss. And this is, I will tell you, pretty much normal in the postpartum period for the two weeks after a baby is born. It's, you can expect a lot of these symptoms. And while it's unfortunate and it doesn't sound great, it's kind of the reality of this phase. And I think knowing that that is coming and knowing what to expect and knowing that it's normal during that period of time can be incredibly helpful and important for women. But that being said, the question then becomes, when do you transition from baby blues to postpartum depression, right? And kind of like we talked about earlier, the big difference there is functioning, right? Are you able um, to engage in your life in the way that you need to? Probably not quite back to work yet, but if you like really can't even get out of bed to you know, help with the laundry or help answer the door or do whatever you need to do, bare minimum functioning around the house, 
that might indicate that you've gone from a period of baby blues into a stage of depression and you really need to talk to someone about it. So it's perfectly fine to have baby blues and that's not really something that we need to be worried about. It's perfectly fine to have baby blues and it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to have depression. But as far as something to be worried about, I'm going to say from a clinical standpoint, as a doctor, I am not too concerned when women come in with these symptoms that they need to be on medications or that you know they're going to develop depression or psychosis or anything like that. But it is something that we need to be talking about because we know that women need increased support during this time from anyone and everyone around them. So we need to expect that this period is going to be exceptionally challenging and plan accordingly. Should we get spouses and relatives and friends involved in this discussion or I guess identification, if you will, of the postpartum depression? Because I know I've read some articles that say that sometimes women themselves don't actually even know that they're experiencing it. And at least for me personally, like I didn't really realize myself that, you know, I was a little bit different. Um, I, I don't think I ever had postpartum depression to that extent, but I definitely had some baby blues, but I didn't really notice it myself. And it was, you know, it was my spouse and, you know, some family members that noticed that I was kind of sad, like right after giving birth. So is that something that maybe we should be educating or getting, you know, getting our husbands on board with or, you know, how should we go about that? Yes, the more people that know about it, the better. And this is why every time you go to a postpartum appointment, the pediatrician's probably going to ask you about your mood and the OBGYN is going to ask you about your mood because the healthcare community has recognized that it's incredibly important we identify women who are struggling in this particular way and reach out and to and help and support because again it's important for both mom and baby. So while pretty much every type of doctor that sees you in this postpartum period is going to be asking about this, it also needs to extend into the family because you're only going to see a doctor a handful of times after a baby is born, but you're probably going to be seeing your partner or your in-laws or your parents or your brothers and sisters, whoever it may be, pretty regularly during this period of time. So it's twofold. One, having probably in the pre um, in the pre-birth phase, having this conversation, you know, I hear this happens to a lot of women. Please tell me if you see anything going on. And to, the second step is being really open and honest. If we feel like we're experiencing any of these things, not feeling too ashamed to let someone know because it's not just important for you. And trust me, you deserve that help. You really, really do. It's also important for baby. And and you know what? Down the line, it means it's also very important for your marriage and your relationships with other people who are really close to you. So this should be an all hands on deck type of thing. Yeah, definitely. That's really great advice. Um, what about postpartum anxiety? I'm asking for this for myself because I didn't really realize that postpartum anxiety was even an issue until I definitely experienced some postpartum. You know, I just remember feeling waves of anxiety and, a, you know, just I never had struggled with anxiety in the past. So it was kind of just a weird feeling for me to feel this for the first time, you know, and I think part of it too was I didn't really recognize what it was since I had never experienced it before. Is postpartum anxiety a real thing? And what can we do to help, you know, manage the symptoms? And how do we know if we have it? Yes, so it's definitely a real thing. And again, it's it's perinatal anxiety. Some women, for some women, it starts um, during their pregnancy or other women, it's right after childbirth. Some other women, it might even be more delayed, like the first couple months seemed okay. And then at any point in that first year, anxiety got really bad out of nowhere. So this whole period of time, we need to be on the lookout for it. 
But I think one of the questions you asked was, what are the symptoms of it? And just a couple that I'll go through um, are incredible and excessive worry. And you just can't get these thoughts of various things that you're worrying about out of your head, in particular, baby's health. And you know it's normal to be worried about your baby's health during this period in time. But if you're just debilitated and can't get off these mommy websites and are calling your doctor 14 times a day, and you can't get these intrusive thoughts out of your head, like something might happen or be wrong with you or baby, that's a sign, right? That maybe it's beyond the stage of what's expected for, for new mom worry, and it's, it's extending beyond that. And this can result in a fear of, of leaving the house at all. You know, I think we all have the friends who are like, oh, we're going to wait a period of time before we go out in public the first time with baby. That's fine and normal. But if it's, you know, all of a sudden it's been three, four, five, six, seven weeks and you won't even go to your neighbor's house or your mom's house for dinner with a small controlled group because you're worried that something could happen to baby, that's a sign that maybe it's starting to impact you and baby in a negative way and it's worth talking to someone about. This can also be accompanied with things like panic attacks, incredible tearfulness, um, getting re- really restless. Like when you're sitting down, just like not being able to get comfortable or relaxed, feeling like you're always on edge and tense. Um, and it can just be overall very uncomfortable and exhausting. It's hard, hard, hard to exist in a state like this. And so after a period of time, you're going to start to to turn inward and be like, what is going on with me? Like, am I going crazy? And you're going to create this narrative in your own head that's actually quite negative. Um, And you're going to end up speaking a lot of negative self-talk to yourself that really only perpetuates the cycle. And this is where we start to see that anxiety becomes closely linked to depression because women just feel like they can't get a break during this period of time. And it's actually that ang- the anxiety that can drive them to a depression if it's not treated or caught early enough. Hmm, I had no idea that anxiety could lead to depression like that. So what I remember at our conference that you had mentioned, you know, there's different stages, if you will, of treatments, if women do realize that they have these issues, or, you know, after reaching out to a healthcare provider that they have some of these, I think that you mentioned, um, you know, I think medicine was like, somewhere in the middle. Um, if you if, if you remember what I'm talking about, so maybe mm-hmm. you could go yes. through just like the different types and stages of treatment and when people should seek each one. Sure. Yeah. And The way I like to think about mental health treatment, I think, needs to be explained first by how I like to think about mental health. And so I'm going to back up and explain that if you don't mind. And that's that think about your physical health, right? We all have periods of time where we feel really in shape and really healthy and really good. And then all of a sudden, life gets busy, things get hard, and you're like, oh, I just don't feel good. I feel like I'm dragging. Um, Or that can go on for an extended period of time, and maybe you start putting on weight and you really fall out of shape. Um, And your health can start to deteriorate pretty quickly at that point, right? So your physical health can exist on this spectrum between pretty healthy to pretty unhealthy, pretty in shape to pretty out of shape. And we all know what it's like to fall at different places on that spectrum in different periods of our life. I'm going to encourage you to think about mental health in the exact same way. Mental health is a spectrum. And while maybe you're okay right now, there's a chance you could be much, much better if you start doing certain things in the future, right? Or there's a chance that it might get significantly worse if you're not tending to yourself or if life just throws a lot at you or if your biologic predisposition puts you at higher risk and then things go sideways and things get harder and you're more vulnerable to developing something. So I want to consider mental illness as existing on this spectrum, right? And mental health is on one end and mental illness is on the other. And for most of us, we fall somewhere in the middle 
any given day of the week, any given time of the month, right? And so when we have to talk about how do you treat mental illness, in particular, talking about um, perinatal mental health as it relates to depression and anxiety for the most part, I like to think of it as a, as a puzzle, right? And there are a lot of pieces to our puzzle and medication can be one piece of that puzzle. But just having the single puzzle piece alone doesn't create the picture of mental health that we need it to, right? So it has to be accompanied by other things. Frequently, it can be therapy. And I love, love, love putting medication and therapy together because every study literally in the history of ever shows that medication plus therapy, when you do those two things together, is better than either one of them apart. Like the sum is greater um, or the, the total is greater than the sum of the parts on their own, like a two plus two equals five type of thing. Um, so depression or uh, medication and therapy, those are two pieces of the puzzle, but there's a lot more pieces to this puzzle. And some of those pieces would be things um, like your faith life, if that's really important to you. And recognizing that, you know, when we be, when we fall vulnerable to things like depression and anxiety, oftentimes it can push us away from our faith and it can push us away from God and working to recultivate our faith in these times that it's really, really hard to do so is such an important piece of that puzzle for many, many women um, and men, I will say. Um, and recognizing that mental illness is not a, a failing of your faith, right? This is something that everyone is vulnerable to at any point in time as a result of original sin, right? We are all going to experience times of sadness and times of fear and times of anxiety. This, this is part of the human experience. And just because you're experiencing it in a certain way, doesn't mean that you have, have failed in developing your faith or that you're being punished, but it actually means that's the time to develop your faith life if that's something that's important to you, because that is such an important piece of this puzzle of your health, right? So we can have medications, we can have therapy, we can have faith. Another really, really important piece to this puzzle is diet and exercise. If you have mild to moderate depression, studies show that if you cultivate an active exercise regimen, I'm talking like 30 to 40 minutes, three to five days a week, the results are actually on par with that of medication, right? So mild to moderate depression can actually be treated with, with medication and or exercise. It can often be hard for someone who's in the throes of depression to meaningfully engage in an exercise routine. So sometimes it's maybe helpful to start a medication to get yourself up and out of bed and then really start investing in your diet and your exercise and your lifestyle in that way. But recognizing, again, that these are complementary pieces and they all have to come and fit together to build this, this picture of health for us. I really like how you describe it as a puzzle because it's, it's definitely just that as you describe that all these different tools that we can have, you know, fit together so perfectly to help us get our mental health back on track. I know for me personally, I always feel a lot better after exercising, even though I don't even have, you know, any particular, you know, anxiety or mental health issues, but every single time I just exercise, it just makes me feel so much better and puts me in such a better mood. And I didn't even know I was in a not not in a good mood to begin with. Isn't that great? Do you remember? I always whenever I talk about exercise and mental health, the scene from Legally Blonde comes in, <laughs> where Elle Woods is like, 
she just got done exercising. Like exercise leads to endorphins. Endorphins make you happy. Happy people just don't kill their husbands, right? <laughs> like that's what I think every time. Like exercise can make you happy. And it's it's such a simple kind of rudimentary. It's, it's much more complex, but that's just such a great um, visual that comes to mind every time I consider exercise and mental health. No, definitely. And it's so shocking how you just have to keep on reminding yourself of it too, because you know, every single time I'm done exercising, I'm like, oh, I feel so great. Oh, I forgot that I feel so great. after So So I will say on that front, um, there's something in science, they call it activation energy, right? Like if you're going to have a chemical reaction taking place, there's like this initial hump that you have to get over to get the interaction started so that this chemical reaction can take place. And if you take this idea of activation energy, right, like what is the initial energy you need to get a ball rolling? And then it takes a lot less energy to keep that ball rolling once it's moving, right? Um, We have so much data that now shows that if you can decrease the quote unquote activation energy that it takes to engage in a behavior, you are so much more likely to do it. Um, And a great anecdote of that would be, for example, say you come in every night and you're like, oh, I really want to read this book. And so you start putting the book on your coffee table. So it's there when you sit down on the couch. But for some reason, you still keep reaching for the remote when the remote and the book are right next to each other. Like, why do I keep turning on the TV even though I know I want to read this book? Well, the activation energy of reaching for the remote and turning on the TV is much lower than getting yourself sitting down, getting yourself in a mental health space where you are ready to read a book and kind of putting out that energy, right? So you keep reaching for the remote. But they actually did a study that showed if you take the batteries out of your remote and you put them in another room across the house and then you put the remote and the book next to each other on a table, the activation energy for turning the TV on goes up and you're more likely to read the book. So (laughs) I just think that's such a great example of like little tweaks that we can do in our daily life. Like, oh gosh, I don't want to exercise. And then like at the end, you're always like, oh, that was great. I need to remember how I feel right now. But start thinking (laughs) about how you can decrease the activation energy to things that are healthy for you and help to cultivate your mental health. You know, if exercise is hard to get yourself going, maybe like lay out your clothes ahead of time or plan to exercise 30 minutes after you have your coffee when the caffeine is starting to kick in. Little things like that can make a big difference when it comes to successful habits. I think you just gave me the solution to how to read that book. It's on the <laughs> table next to the couch. But... That's so funny. Um, I noticed too, when you're talking a little while back, you mentioned husbands and mental health. Is that something that we should also be on the lookout for? Like do, do husbands actually experience mental health issues when their wives are pregnant and postpartum? So they do. There is paternal postpartum depression. So I'm so glad that you asked that. Um, and it's very, very similar to signs and symptoms of maternal postpartum depression. And it things like feeling sad, feeling tired, not being interested in things, hard to focus, easily getting overwhelmed or feeling more anxious, um, maybe changes in your eating or sleeping patterns, all very, very common in dads following the first year of or in the first year of a baby's life. And part of this, I think it's so beautiful, actually, is that like the mirroring. So we have mirror neurons. And it's the same, it's why when you smile, I feel like I need to smile. Or when you yawn, I feel like I need to yawn. And these mirror neurons are so intimately um, responsive to your partner when you spend enough time with someone that actually a woman going through kind of these big hormonal shifts and adjusting to having a child and going through these hard times can actually trigger something in, in the partner as well. And 
I think it's such a beautiful design. It, it can be a terrible thing to go through postpartum, uh, paternal postpartum depression, but what a beautiful design to think that these two partners are intimately related in this way, where when one struggles, the other might struggle as well. Like, that to me is just so stunning and so divine because it also means that when one is doing really well, the other one is doing really well. That's truly like the conceptualization of two becoming one, right? Um, but I will say for paternal postpartum depression, things to know, the, the dads who are at higher risk for this are those who have had depression in the past, those who might be struggling financially or overwhelmed maybe at work or in other areas of their lives, and in particular, those who are experiencing relationship problems. So if any of those factors are present for your in your relationship or for your partner, please be on the lookout. And just as it's important for dads to be mindful of mom's health, it's important for moms to be mindful of dad's health in this way. Wow, that's so crazy. I didn't realize about the the mirror neurons. That kind of reminded me, I had almost forgotten about it, that when I was pregnant and experiencing all my nausea and whatnot in the first trimester, it's funny because my husband kind of felt like he was going through all of that as well with me, like, <laughs> like sympathy, nausea or whatnot. So that's why they didn't realize yeah. that there was like something <laughs> scientific behind that. That's so I have to tell you, I have a friend who's pregnant right now and her husband is having sympathy cravings. <laughs> and at first I was like, yeah, sure you are. But like, he really is. He's very fit. He normally really, really watches what he eats and he'll be sitting there. He's like, I just can't, like, I feel like <laughs> something's just not right. And he'll come back with like, a dozen donuts. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> oh my God. Wow. So yeah, we can see examples of this in kind of every area and every stage of pregnancy for sure. Wow. That's crazy. So I guess it, it's scientific and my husband wasn't just going crazy. <laughs> it's a sign of how much he loves you, Emily. <laughs> that's great. Well, I, are there any other practical tools that can help women navigate the road of mental health during pregnancy, postpartum, and beyond? Yeah, so twofold. One, I think knowing the signs and symptoms so that when you start to get concerned, you can talk to people about it and you can you know, maybe talk to your doctor or your family members. First of all, knowing that this is likely to happen and knowing that it's important to reach out to other people is going to be really, really important. And then second, if you are someone who's either thinking about getting pregnant or maybe pregnant currently, do everything you can to build up these kind of positive mental health reserves. Even though you don't feel like it and the activation energy is really high to exercise when you're pregnant, even if it's just mild exercise, um, it's really important, right? Because everything you do that kind of brings your needle closer towards mental health than mental illness is really important and it's good for mom and baby. So whenever you have an opportunity to do something that will make you a little bit healthier, engage in that because it will be preventative and protective in the future. And Emily, if you don't mind, I would kick myself if I didn't say this. I just want to add one little blurb about postpartum psychosis. Is that okay? Oh, definitely. So postpartum psychosis, is it's very rare, but it's incredibly important. And so we have to talk about it here because what postpartum psychosis is, is roughly around two weeks after baby's been born, within that time period, women can start um, experiencing hallucinations, maybe seeing or hearing things that other people are not. Um, and maybe they'll like stop sleeping. They'll start pacing through the house. People are be like, you're not acting like yourself. Why are you seeming so paranoid? Are you worried about people coming to get you? Things that are just above and beyond where everyone around you is like, I'm really worried. Something is not right. 
This is so incredibly important. And this is considered a mental health emergency because postpartum psychosis can result in really poor outcomes for mom and baby. And in the most extreme examples that I've seen, and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here, but I do think we need to talk about the reality of it. This can actually result in um, mom harming baby and potentially baby even dying as a result of that, or mom doing something to harm herself and maybe mom dying and leaving baby without a mom. So if in any way, shape or form, hallucinations or incredible paranoia or just like an overwhelming agitated energy comes out, please go to the emergency room right away because it's imperative for mom and baby's health that this happens. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't realize that that could be such a, an emergency like that. And I didn't even really know that that existed either. Mm-hmm. It, could, it's rare. Okay. It's rare, which is why it's not talked about very often. I don't want to make anyone too nervous. It's right. incredibly, incredibly rare, but it is something that we need to know is an, an emergent situation and, and someone needs to get access to help immediately if it does happen. Okay. Are there any books or classes that you know couples can take together, maybe just to be a little bit more aware of all these mental health issues. I mean, I remember I took like a hospital birthing class and that was just nice just for my husband and I just together to learn information about, you know, what's expected during labor and delivery or whatnot. But is there something like that for mental health? Like are there classes or books or other resources that you would recommend? So that's tough. It's not quite as developed. Like you said, like there's not necessarily... Most hospitals don't have like mental health courses that you go through, like you go through, you know, preparing for baby courses. Um, There's several, several books out there that are um, popular in this regard. But what I will say is actually, I think the most important thing, as opposed to picking up a book or, um, you know, completing a very specific curriculum is actively engaging as partners during this, the, the period of the pregnancy. And while maybe this like, baby preparation class you go to doesn't talk specifically about mental health. What it does do is put you and your partner on the same page once a week or twice a week, whatever the frequency is. So you're there, you're talking about baby, you're talking about the changes that are going on, you're talking about what you're going to expect, maybe what the challenges might be. And it creates a platform to have these conversations. So my husband and I actually, when we were pregnant with my son, we would like picnic in the parking lot of the hospital before we went to these mommy daddy classes. (laughs) And we just like pack something and we would take 30 minutes before and we'd eat in the car and we just talk about, you know, kind of what the previous week's class was and how we felt like things were doing. And that was our time to engage as expecting parents and have some of these conversations. So while there might not be specific classes at every hospital that's available, any like pregnancy preparation class, use that as a time and a space that's protected for you and your partner to start to have these conversations surrounding what you can expect and what you're experiencing now. I like that a lot. So it sounds like it's a good idea to have just regular weekly check-ins, you know, they're reoccurring just to kind of check in with each other, you know, like on the calendar. Yeah. And it, Some people are more formal about it, you know, like actually get it on a calendar invite and send it to someone else. Like for us, we just knew that we were going to be there every week. And so that kind of turned into this for us. Um, But if you need to schedule it because you're both very busy, I definitely would. But just trying to intentionally create this space every week um, or more frequently than that, if you need it to talk about how things are going now and what you anticipate might happen in the future. So you're having those conversations before you get there. So you kind of know the page that each other's on. Got it. I'm glad that we talked about this. I know I'll I'll wrap it up in a few minutes, but I just wanted to 
talk a little bit since you mentioned like these weekly check-ins or whatnot. I remember for me, at least personally, when I was pregnant and postpartum, I think the biggest hurdle for me was maybe, I don't know if I'm, this is right, but maybe that activation that you were talking about where it's like having that initial conversation, you know, I just found that it was kind of hard to just get it going. Do you have any mm-hmm. tips for moms that are like, they want to talk about it, but they it's hard sometimes to even get your feelings into words, if that makes sense. Like, how do you increase that activation, I guess? Yeah, yeah especially in that first two weeks, right, where everyone's going to have these hormones and emotions yeah, that are all over the place. And we know that we can expect that. Right. Um, so as far as decreasing the activation energy to engage in those conversations, oh, what a great question, Emily. Um, I would say prep your partner for it ahead of time, right? If you have these intentional spaces before, be like, Hey, I'm not sure if this is going to happen to me, but I'm also not sure I'll be able to reach out. Like, I don't know what it's going to be like. Can you please intentionally ask me about this? Cause I'm worried that I might be too embarrassed or too shy or too tired or whatever it may be to have this conversation with you, but we've got to have it like for baby's sake and for my sake and for the sake of our relationship, we've got to have these conversations and actually asking your partner to kind of put it on their calendar to check in with you might be a really helpful way to go about it. Mm, I like that tip a lot. That's a good one. Great. Well, I'm so glad we talked about the, the these last minute things that we fit in. So thank you so much again for being on our podcast. And um, I know we'll have you on again soon. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Emily. Have a good one. Thank you so much again for listening in on another episode of the Mother Good Podcast. We hope you really enjoyed today's conversation. And as a reminder, Mother Good is a nonprofit organization funded by our generous donors. So if you would like to support this podcast, please consider joining our donors at mothergoodcode.com slash give.